We're continuing our series on tough questions. I'm glad you asked the tough questions about faith. God is not threatened by our doubts. He's not threatened by our questions. Truth is nothing we should be afraid of because God is the author of all truth. All truth is God's truth. Two weeks ago, we looked at the question, does science and reason make the Bible irrelevant? Last week, we looked at the question, how could a world created by a loving God, a powerful God, create or or contain so much suffering, so much pain, so much death? Today, we're going to ask the question, can Jesus really be the only way? How is it possible that of all the faith systems and belief systems and philosophies out there, there's only one that gets you to God, that gets you to eternal life? And is that the case? So turn with me to John 14, 1 through 10. That's where we're going to start today. John 14, 1 through 10. I remember some years ago on Easter Sunday, I had my Sunday paper and inside was the little parade magazine that they used to slip in there. And parade had asked six different religious leaders, members of all different faiths, the the same question, what is the biggest problem in the world in religion today? And each one had had the opportunity to write a little paragraph. Here's what I think is the biggest problem in religion in the world today. And, And five out of the six agreed. They basically said the same thing in their own words. They said the problem with religion today is exclusivity. It's the fact that people are audacious and arrogant enough to say that my beliefs are the only true beliefs and my God is the only real God and my way is the only way to eternal life. And because they're so arrogant and they're so ignorant of other people's belief systems, they're so insistent on their way or the highway, literally, that causes all kinds of division, that causes tribalism, it causes, uh, you go back into history, it causes religious wars, even today it causes terrorism, it causes genocide. So if everyone would just let go of their exclusivity and say that your path may be just as valid as mine, and there are many paths to God, then everything would be better. And I can understand that viewpoint. I can understand where it comes from. I I watch the news too. I've read history too. I see how much evil is done in the name of religion. Next week we're going to talk about does religion do more harm than good? And we're really going to dig into that question. And and I've also heard this the parable of the blind men and the elephant. Have you ever heard this one? This is not in the Bible, but it's a very familiar one to many of us. It says that there was once an elephant inside this room, and these blind men came into the room, and they started groping around to try to find out what was in the room. They each encountered the elephant in different ways. One touched his tail and said, well, this is a rope. And another touched his snout and said, no, it's a hose. And another touched his ear and said, it's a fan. And another touched his leg and said, no, it's a tree trunk. And another touched his side and said, no, it's a wall. And and finally, the last one touched his tusk and said, you're all wrong. It's a spear. And so the point of the parable is that like religions, the religions of the world are like those blind men. They're all encountering the same thing in different ways, but are arrogant enough to think that my way is the only way. And people who use that parable will say it and think to themselves, I'm being truly humble. I'm being truly tolerant and peace-loving. If everyone would be like me, the world would be better off. The problem with that parable is it's neither humble nor tolerant. It's not humble because the person telling the story puts themselves in the position of the only person in the story who can see. So everyone else is ignorant. Everyone else is blind. But I can see. I can see God as He really is. All the religious people of the world are blind, and they can only see what they encounter. You see the arrogance of that? It's also not tolerant. Because it says to all the religious folks in the world, of all their various belief systems, ignore anything in your belief system that 
contradicts anyone else's. So if you're a Muslim and, and you believe that, that you can only know God through the prophet Muhammad, well, you have to get rid of that. If you're a Hindu and you believe there are thousands of God, well, you've got you've to figure out a way to reconcile that with all the monotheistic religions and Buddhists who don't even believe there is a personal God and, and Jews who believe that there's one God and, and they are the chosen people and Christians who believe that God is most perfectly seen in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, they've all just got to get together and figure things out because they're all worshiping the same God. Let's just get rid of the things, the parts of their faith that contradict each other. Well, then all you're left with is a few rules. You see how offensive that is? How intolerant that is to go to someone who has had a, a real encounter with God and say, no, 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 ignore that because it offends others. So who is God? Who is God really? And who really is qualified to tell us who God is? The thing about Jesus is just about everybody agrees he was a pretty good guy. Jews believe that he was a prophet. Muslims not only believe he was a prophet, they believe that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, and that he's returning to earth someday. My friends, many of my friends who are not religious at all will tell me, I don't believe what you believe, but I sure do like Jesus. Boy, his teachings are amazing. He had this incredible moral sense. He was courageous. He was compassionate. I, I wish we would all follow his example. If we did, the world would be perfect. So everyone agrees Jesus was a wonderful person. But what did Jesus say about who God is? Well, look with me at John 14. John 14, 1 through 10. And the context here is, this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. And he's the only one who knows this is about to happen. He's with his very best friends, who he has spent literally 24-7 the last three years with. And he knows within a few hours, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tormented. I'm going to be tried, convicted, and crucified. And so he's trying to enjoy these last few hours with his closest friends. And here's what he says to them to comfort them. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that, where all, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, there's a lot there that I'd love to spend time in about, about heaven, about the second coming, about the future of the world, but that's for another day. I want you to notice Thomas was one of those people who was constantly questioning. So he's the first one to speak up now. He says in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is, my, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So 
What did Jesus say about himself in this passage? A couple of very, very significant things. First of all, he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Here's Thomas saying, okay, Lord, you're going away, and you say, you know the way to the place. Well, we don't know the way. How can we get there? And Jesus said, you know me. That's all you need to know. If you know me, you know the way. You know how to get to God, and no one can get to the Father except through me. That is an incredibly audacious statement. In verse 9, when Philip says, well, okay, enough about this. I just want to see God. And Jesus says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen him. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am him. What a statement. Especially for a Jew who they were intensely aware of God's holiness and how different God is than humans and, and, and how awful it would be to speak a word that took God's name in vain. And yet here's Jesus saying, no, I, I am him. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this wasn't the only, pro- only place Jesus made such claims. This wasn't a, a moment of crisis in his life when he just sort of lost it and started speaking nonsense. If you look at John eleven twenty five, 25, that's part of the chapter where Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead and he's standing next to Lazarus' sister and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is saying, listen, for the, for, for the history of human beings, we've been wondering what to do about the problem of death. How do you solve it? No one wants to die. Well, the answer is not in medicine, and it's not in philosophy, and it's not in sorcery. It's in me. I'm the only answer. I'm the only one who can enable you to overcome death. On the day of his death, a few hours after what we read earlier, he's standing before Caiaphas, the the Jewish high priest, the leader of, the religious leader of his own people, the man who right now is in charge of the trial for Jesus' life. At a moment when you would expect Jesus to say, hey, you and me have a lot in common. You know, we've had our disagreements, but we can get over those. Come on, let's, let's figure things out. Surely I don't need to die, right? At the moment you would expect Jesus to be bargaining, to be negotiating. He says this instead, Mark 14, 62. And by the way, the context here, Caiaphas has just said to him, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? In other words, do you claim to be divine? And Jesus says, I am. He takes the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name of God, I am, upon himself. That's what caused Caiaphas to tear his clothes. But then he goes on, he says, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is he saying? He's saying, Caiaphas, you think you're getting rid of me, but you're not. You're putting me to death right now, but I'm coming back. And the next time you see me, you won't be glad to see me because it will be the day of your judgment, the day when you will have to give an accounting for what you did here and the way you lived the rest of your life. Jesus said, I have the power to judge you. I have the power to judge everyone. This is why after Jesus was gone, his closest friends went around saying things like Acts 4.12, Uh, Robert quoted it a little earlier today. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we may be saved. Incredibly exclusive claims. As C.S. Lewis once said, it's pretty simple. You've got three choices with Jesus. He's either liar or lunatic or Lord. He's got to be one of the three. He's either a, a, a deceiver, an arch deceiver, a con man, a, a, a cult leader on the, on the level of a Jim Jones or a David Koresh who deceives people into dying for him. 
under false pretenses. Or he's a, he's a lunatic. He's someone who has lost his mind and believes he is something that he's not. Or he's exactly who he said he was. The one thing he absolutely could not be is a good man who's just a man. He can't just be a good teacher, a wise sage, a compassionate freedom fighter, because good people don't say the things that Jesus said about themselves unless they're true. And for anyone, and there may be somebody here who would say, wait a second, maybe he was just being metaphorical when he said, I'm the way. He meant just follow my path and you'll get to God. When he said, you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Maybe he meant, if you follow me, uh, I'll show you what the Father looks like. Well, that can't be true, and I'll tell you why. Because everyone who followed him, all that first generation, all those people who knew him, they understood him to be speaking absolutely literally. And when Jesus, when Peter would stand before him and say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus didn't say, oh, no, 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 you misunderstood me. When Thomas bowed down before him and said, my Lord and my God, Jesus said, didn't say, hey, get up, I'm just a man. No, Jesus meant exactly what he said. And they understood it that way. And so you have to choose. As Gary Wills, the Catholic scholar, said, either Jesus was God or he is a standing blasphemy against God. You have to choose. Is he what he said he was? And if he is what he said he was, then he's the only way. So how do we know? I mean, after all, lots of people have made claims about their own knowledge of God. Think about Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, Joseph Smith, Charles T. Russell, Mary Baker Eddy, Sung Young Moon, and I'm just getting started. There have been hundreds, maybe thousands of people who claim to have an intimate connection with the divine and claim to be able to tell us things we didn't know about God. Why should we believe Jesus and not them? And the only answer to that question, the only answer to that question is Easter. That's really the only answer. And I'll tell you why. Because Christianity, out of all the religions, Christianity is the only one whose truth rests on whether an event actually happened or not. And that event is the resurrection. Because you don't have to even believe that Gautama the Buddha actually lived in order to be a Buddhist. You just have to follow the teachings. You don't have to accept all the truth claims in the Quran to be a Muslim. You don't have to believe that God parted the Red Sea in order to be a Jew. All you have to do is follow the teachings, observe the rituals, claim the identity, but Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ is not risen, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If Christ is not risen, then there is no Christianity. If Christ is not risen, if He didn't rise again, then He was not who He said He was. Then we should not adore Him. We should not worship Him. We should not count Him among the great people in history. And we shouldn't be sitting here today. We should all be out doing whatever our hearts tell us to do. So is Christ risen? Yes. Let me tell you how I know. There, there are a lot of evidences of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, I would say, and I'm not the only one who says this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best attested event in ancient history. We know that Jesus was risen with greater certainty than we know that Julius Caesar was emperor of Rome. 
there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than any other ancient event. Let me give you three. This is just three. There's many more, but three, I think, that are pretty compelling. Number one, we know because of the eyewitnesses. We know Jesus rose because, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, written 25 or 30 years after Jesus. At that time, he said there's at least 500 people still alive today who saw him risen. They saw him after the cross. They saw him die. They saw him alive afterwards. They touched him. They put their arms around him. They watched him eat. They heard him speak. They know he was risen. And people who don't like that story will say, hey, that's easy to explain. Legends spring up over time. It's very simple. Uh, we want to believe what we want to believe, and eventually we believe that it's true. And so they'll say, for instance, look at, look at the story of George Washington. We, we grew up hearing that story that when George Washington was a little kid, he once chopped down a cherry tree, and when his dad came home and asked him who did it, he said, Father, I cannot tell a lie. It was me. And historians will tell you that never happened. That's just a legend. That's something someone made up in a children's book and we liked it so much we made it like it was true. Or they will say, you know that story about Babe Ruth, how back in the 30s he stood uh, at home plate against the Cubs in the World Series and pointed his bat into left field and on the next pitch he hit a home run. And they'll say, they'll say there's no way that happened. Every baseball historian you, you could talk to would say there's no way that ever actually happened. If, if Babe Ruth or anybody else would have pointed his bat to the outfield, the pitcher would have hit him in the head with the next pitch. And that's the way baseball works. But we like that story, so we believe it. We love that story. And so they'll say what happened with Jesus, I'm sure is, after he died, his followers were so distraught, they said to one another, listen, he'll never really die as long as we keep on believing in his teachings, as long as we keep his teachings alive and keep living the way he told us to. He'll, he'll in some sense, always still be alive. And, and the generations passed, and eventually people started to say, hey, maybe he really did rise again. And then someone, hey, let's make up some stories to back this up. Hey, let's, let's say that he met Mary Magdalene. Let's say he met Paul or, or Peter and then later Paul. And, and that's how it became quote-unquote truth. There's a problem with that. Legends take a long time to develop. And let me tell you why. A legend can't develop while people are still alive who saw the actual event, right? So for instance, how many of y'all can remember, if, if you're young, you won't, but it, how many of y'all can remember the day that the space shuttle Challenger exploded? Remember that? Yeah, that was a pretty traumatic event. I was, I was a junior in high school. I was in journalism class, and I couldn't figure out why this girl in my class was crying, and then I found out. It was very, very memorable. Now, what if tomorrow you turn on the news and find out that someone is on the news saying, hey, you know, remember that time when the astronauts in the space shuttle Challenger, when that, that shuttle exploded and then we saw them parachute out and float down to safety and we threw a big ticker tape parade and you'd be screaming at the television, no, that's not the way it happened. Those poor people all died and we all grieved and mourned because it was a great tragedy. All of us had seen it happen. We wouldn't let some false story take root. Well, get this. When the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, in which he talks about the resurrection, it was only about 25 years after Jesus lived. That's less time ago than the space shuttle Challenger explosion. There were still plenty of people alive who would have contradicted him. And then a little bit later came 
the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, who told the story in greater detail. No one stepped forward and said, this is all lies. The eyewitnesses were there. And not only the Gospel writers, my favorite eyewitness of the resurrection was a young woman named Mary Magdalene who was the first one to see Jesus. And the reason I love her as an eyewitness is this. Ladies, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I know it's hard being a woman today. I can only imagine. It was much harder being a woman back then. Women were seen as inferior. They were not, their testimony was not accepted in a court of law. And yet, all the Gospels testify that Jesus, when He rose from the grave, He appeared first to a woman, to Mary. Now, I ask you something. If if the early church was trying to make up a story to back up a legend, why would they include that detail? Why would they include a detail that would make their story less believable to the ancient world unless they were telling it the way it actually happened? The eyewitness testimony is powerful. I'll tell you a second reason we can believe and know that Jesus rose again, and that is the change that occurred in His closest followers after His death. You see, when you read the Gospels, this is one of the things you find out when you read the Gospels for yourself. You're amazed at how inept his disciples were. Here's these 12 men who we've named our sons after. We've named schools and hospitals and universities and cities after. And they're ridiculously incompetent. And they don't have any courage or faith. And Jesus is constantly having to correct them. And they, they, they constantly get afraid and run away when they should stand tall. And then Jesus is gone, and you think, boy, the, the movement is really going to collapse now. But suddenly, there's this transformation in them. Suddenly, they're men of great courage. Suddenly, they're men of incredible boldness. Suddenly, they have so much passion and compassion for other people. They're willing to die so that others can have the salvation they've received. And what explains that transformation? What explains the fact that uneducated blue-collar guys from different walks of life who in ordinary life wouldn't even like each other suddenly become people who are known as these men who have turned the world upside down? That's literally what they were called. And not only that, Jesus' own brothers, early in the Gospels, it tells us his brothers didn't believe in him. They scoffed at him. They made fun of him. They tried to convince their mother, Mary, hey, mom, let's go get Jesus and bring him home. He's embarrassing us. But then Jesus dies, and suddenly two of his brothers, James and Jude, become followers of Christ. Suddenly, James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. James and Jude write books that are in the Bible today, books in which they refer to him as my Lord and themselves as his servant. Let me tell you something. I have a brother, one brother. It's just the two of us in our family. He's four years younger than me. I love him to death. I think he's a great guy. I look up to him literally because he's six inches taller than me. But I tell you, I'm never going to call him my Lord. I'm never going to call myself his servant. And I know for a fact he's not divine. And he would say the same thing about me. What would it take for a brother to look at his own brother and say, my goodness, this is the one true God. This is the only way to salvation. And what about, what about the movement that sprang up after Jesus was gone? First of all, you've got Jewish people 
who are very, very devout about worshiping on the Sabbath day, and the Sabbath day only, the seventh day of the, or the, the first day of the week, or, sorry, the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. Every Saturday, they dropped what they were doing. They did no work. They went to the synagogue. They prayed. They heard the word read. They fellowshiped with one another. That's what it meant to be a Jew. And now, suddenly, Jesus is gone, and these Jewish believers start getting together on Sunday. On Sunday. And celebrating this meal together where they eat unleavened bread and drink wine and they say this is the body of Christ and this is the blood of our Lord and they call it communion and it's basically the center of what they do. And What accounts for that kind of change? And what accounts for the fact that this little bitty ragtag group of people, a few hundred when Jesus left the world, suddenly exploded? I mean, the Roman Empire was the most fearsome empire on earth and in a couple hundred years they had literally outstripped the Roman Empire. And as someone says, we name our sons after the apostles and we name our dogs after the Caesars. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. What accounts for what happened? Because I mean, you can explain the rise of other religions. Those, those religions arose because they became the chief religion of a certain people group. And as that people group spread biologically, then that religion spread. Or, or that they, they spread because they were, they were uh, very keen on military conquest. So when they took over another country, that country became adherents of that faith. But Christianity was different. It spread to places that had never heard the message until a missionary landed. It spread all over the world, not just in certain ethnicities. It didn't spread through military conquest. It spread through persuasion. It spread through compassion. It spread through love. What accounts for that? What accounts for the existence of two billion people on earth who call themselves by the name of an uneducated carpenter who was executed as an enemy of the state unless something amazing happened. And then there's the testimony of the martyrs. You see, those 500 people Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, all of them went to their graves saying to the very dying day, to their last breath, Jesus rose. I saw him. I touched him. I know he was risen. And we know this because if even one of them had spoken up and said, no, it's not true, the faith would have died on the vine because it was based not on Jesus' teachings, but on His resurrection. So let's do a little thought experiment just for fun. Let's imagine that the people in this room, we're going we're to start a conspiracy, okay? We're going to try to begin a new religion all on our own. We're going to say our friend Larry passed away a couple of weeks ago. We're going to dig Larry up under cover of darkness. We're going to tell everybody that Larry rose from the dead that he was the son of God, and that if you follow Larry, if you become a Larryite, then you're going to go to heaven when you die. Now, we're going to have to be pretty good salesmen. I mean, Larryism isn't going to sell itself. People are going to look at us like we're strange. In fact, people are going to treat us like we're freaks. Can you handle that? What about when your family doesn't like you anymore? What about when your family, like your children, won't talk to you because they're ashamed of you because you're believing in this strange new religion? What about when you lose your job because your boss says, listen, I don't need this kind of attention on my company? What about when the police show up and say, so what happened to this dead guy? There's an empty grave over there. Someone dug it up. Where is he? You know this is against the law, right? 
Let me ask you something. When, when one of us, just pick someone randomly, one of us is sitting in that room with some big burly detective and he's grilling us, how long do you think it'll be before that person says, okay, I confess. We dug him up. It was a crazy idea. I wish we'd never done it, but uh, he's, he's in our backyard in a hefty bag. Don't worry about it. I say that happens within days. Larryism doesn't make the weak. Because which one of us is going to go to jail for what we know to be a lie? And yet, those 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, many of them died violent deaths. They were impaled. They were burned at the stake. They were beheaded. They were crucified. Peter was crucified upside down. They were stoned to death. They were killed in all kinds of sadistic ways. And any one of them could have escaped with his life if he only would have said, it was all a story. I confess it. Please don't kill me. I will tell you everything. Yet all of them died confessing Christ has risen. And you might come back and say, yeah, but people die for their religion all the time. There's nothing big about that. I mean, turn on the news tomorrow, someone's probably, someone has probably blown themselves up in the name of their God. Well, what do you say about that? Well, here's the difference. Young man who blows himself up in the name of his religion, why does he do that? Because his religious leader, who he esteems, says, if you will do this, if you will take out all these infidels in the name of our God, you'll go straight to heaven. And what I've always wondered is, why doesn't he then say, if that's true, why haven't you blown up yourself yet? That's what I would say. But he doesn't, and he believes. You know why? Because he accepts this person's testimony. He accepts this person as an authoritative source of truth. When this person speaks, it's like God himself speaking. The difference between that young man and those first eyewitnesses is they weren't listening to the testimony of anyone else. They themselves knew whether what they were saying was true or not. They were the ones claiming to have seen the risen Christ. And no one, no one who has any sense at all, dies for what they know to be a lie. Even your boss, even your spouse is not that stubborn. Okay? No one dies for what they know to be a lie. And yet these people gave their lives for Christ. As the theologian Wolfhart Pannenberg says, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong, nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you'd have to change the way you live. And that's what it comes down to. So if you don't know, if, if you still don't like the fact that Jesus is the only way and you, you, this can't be true, again, if Jesus is who he said he was, then he's the only way. And if Jesus rose again, then he was who he said he was. It's as simple as that. And if you don't believe Jesus rose again, then what do you do about the eyewitnesses and all that testimony? What do you do about the explosion of the early church when there was nothing else to explain it? What do you do about all those people who died claiming to have seen him at pain of death? How do you counteract that evidence? And if you say, okay, the evidence is on your side, I just don't want to believe it because I like my life the way it is and I'd have to change everything if I believed that Jesus was the only way. And I say, I admire your honesty, but I would also say, 
just humbly propose to you. You just might find, if you check it out, that Jesus being the way to salvation is the best news you ever heard. Frederica Matthews Green, very, very educated, intelligent person, born into a, a highly literate home, nominally Catholic home. So she grew up going to church, but didn't really receive any kind of uh, convincing evidence of faith. When she was a teenager, she decided that Christianity was a fairy tale and not even a very good one. As a young woman, she sort of dabbled in atheism for a while, didn't like it. She had more of a religious bent, and so she explored world religions. She really liked Hinduism because it was very, very different from what she'd grown up with, but she was open to just about everything except one. She absolutely had no interest in Christianity. She'd been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. She had no interest at all. She married a, a man who was a grad student, as she was, who was an atheist, and on their honeymoon, hitchhiking across Europe, he confessed something to her. He said, I've been reading the Gospels. It was part of a, a class assignment in one of my classes, and, and I just have to say, there's something about Jesus. I've never encountered anyone like him before. I know, I know he's speaking the truth. I, I know I'm an atheist, but if Jesus says there's a God, then there must be a God. Now, put yourself in her shoes. This is the worst news she could possibly hear. I mean, she has no interest in Christianity. She's marrying, she's married to an atheist man, pretty safe, right? Now he confesses to her that he's drawn to Jesus. And yet a few days later, there in Dublin, she finds herself in a Catholic chapel kneeling before a statue of Jesus and hearing this little voice inside of her head that says, I am your life. You thought your life was your history, your name, your personality. You thought your life was the fact that your heart beats, but that's not your life. I am. I am the foundation of everything else about you. And not knowing what else to do, she just started reading the Bible. And she found out she really didn't agree with much that was in the Bible. She didn't like it, but she couldn't get away from Jesus. That, that man, his life, his teachings... So sometime later, the two of them were eating dinner with a friend of theirs who happened to be a Christian, and they just happened to say, hey, we're reading about Jesus, we're really drawn to him, we really admire him. And he said, well, have you asked Jesus to be your Lord? And their response was classic. They said, well, we're not Southern Baptists. And he said, well, actually, Jesus wants to be Lord of everybody. And they said, yeah, but we're in grad school. And he said, yeah, even you. And right there... In that apartment of their friend, those two young people asked Jesus to take control of their lives. And today, Frederica Matthews Green is a, a highly thought of Christian writer. Her husband is a minister. And she would say what I'm about to say to you. What you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. What you believe about Jesus is more important than who your parents were or what you look like or how many kids you have or who you marry or what you do for a living or where you went to school. The most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus. So what do you believe about Him? And I would say, and she would say, that if you check Him out, you just might find the life you've always hoped for but never knew was possible. The God you were created to know. The source of all that you've loved about this world and all you've hoped would be true is found in Him.